the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. This is the first time you heard the show. Hey, welcome aboard. If you heard the show in the past, you know what we're about. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes. We need to pay legally. We don't like to pay taxes if we don't have to. Avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, sometimes current events. And we usually start the show with one of our attorneys in in the office, Nicole Donnelly, accompanied right now by my wife, Beth, and my son, Michael. Hey, everybody. Thanks hello, for being hello. here with us today. <laughs> but, Nicole, before we started the show, you said it might not be a bad idea to we, if we return to the real basics. And what do you mean by that? I think it's an important thing to go over the foundation of estate planning, which before we even take it back to the basics, we proposed a question earlier. What's the difference between estate planning and elder law? Does anybody know? Do you know? Do I know? What would you say to the audience the difference is? Well, go ahead, Beth. You're going to say something? Yeah. um, Elder law... When I'm, when you have a question that's elder law, that the person is always alive. You know, this is someone that's found themselves maybe um, in a difficult situation, an elderly person in a difficult situation, and they don't know what to do. Before, sometimes before even the the estate planning comes along, you've got to sort of get stable. All right. What, you know, who am I? How do I take care of myself now? And I know you get into the different things. Okay, a power of attorney, that's used for when the person is alive. They're elderly, they're alive, they may need some help. 
um, health care proxy. That's elder law. That's they when they get sick, they end up in a hospital. Is there someone that can help if they can't speak for themselves? That can help get through a difficult situation with the with the doctors. Um, so. That's elder law. If they're in their homes and they have, they don't have a senior citizen exemption or there are tons of things that when you talk to somebody, when they come in, that you start helping them in all these different directions that help this individual while they're still alive. The estate planning, the, the wills and trust. So often those things are well, when I'm gone, what's going to happen? Always not, you know, it's not all the time, but there's some things where you want to protect this person now. They're, they've lost their heat in their, in their home, in their apartment. They need help now. This is elder law. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, listen, there's a tremendous overlap between estate planning and elder law. And one time I used to say that maybe elder law is estate planning for the middle class. Of course, there's a question, what's middle class and what's not? And and the distinction I would be was whether you need to have some tax planning in it or not. Um, you know, basically right now it's tax laws. New York State's going to go to almost $7 million tax rate at the end of the year or beginning of next year, I should say. So if you're under $7 million, you don't really have to worry about tax planning you know, if you're a New York State resident, the federal amount is going to be, I, I just saw the number the other day, but whatever, like $13,600,000 and change for next year. So if you're under those numbers, we don't have to worry about taxes. And that's maybe where we get into elder law, where we, we, we want to save assets from nursing home bills. And a lot of times the way we do that is through a trust. And a trust is an estate planning tool, and it's an elder law tool. It saves your assets where you can apply for home care benefits, Medicaid, New York. And we should probably spend a show on this because the law is probably, or at least it's scheduled to change on April 1st, whatever it is, four months from now. The law changes on home care Medicaid, and we probably should, you know, spend some more time. But to, to summarize in 25 words or less, before April 1st, if you put an application in for home care Medicaid benefits, there's no look-back period. After April 1st, there's going to be a 30-month look-back period. Now, that's in theory what's going to happen. We don't know exactly because Medicaid in New York State has kicked the ball down the road so many times. I'm not 100% sure. I don't think anybody is that April 1st is going to be the real date that things change. What else did you have in mind, Nicole? Well, speaking about tools and things like that, tell the audience, does everyone actually need a will? Yeah, and and that's one of the few things that it can say, you know, and, and sometimes... There's a misconception going around, and part of it is done by some estate planning attorneys, and they say, you know, uh, you don't want a will, you want a trust, which if you own real estate, I wholeheartedly agree, you should have a trust agreement and you should not leave your assets through a will. The problem is if you leave your assets through the will, it goes through court, it goes through probate, and in today's world with so many families, you know, dysfunctional, Litigating, You know, they're, they're, they're families that seem to litigate for 20, 30 years. You want to avoid litigation if you can. And if you want to avoid your assets going through court after you're gone, we do a trust agreement. Now, especially for real estate, because there's not an easy way to avoid court 
if you own real estate. It's not you go to a bank, you can put a bank account in trust for it. You can put a, account, a bank account joint. That's not going to go through court. It's not going to go through probate. But if you put a, a piece of real estate joint, a lot of bad things can happen. You know, you, you put your house joint with your son. Your son's married. Something happens to him. His wife puts a claim in against his total estate. She has maybe she owns part of your house. Um, you want to sell your house. Your son doesn't live in the house. He's got to pay taxes on his share uh, of the house that's in his name. Uh, he could get sued. They put a lien on the house for his half, and you can't sell a mortgage your ha- house. You know, putting a house joint is really not the best alternative, and that's where a trust agreement, a trust agreement the house is yours as long as you're alive. After you're gone, it goes to the next generation. There's no court proceeding. There's no probate. There's no taxes under, you know, give or take next year, close to $7 million. There's no taxes. And that, if we plan it when both members of a couple are alive, is $7 million for husband, $7 million for wife. So we can get $14 million out tax-free without breaking a sweat. So, I mean, it, there's no one size that fits all, but that fits a lot of people. is through that trust agreement and putting your assets through the trust. And, you know, I know some some people, I think the, I think the resistance is dying down. I think some people used to think a trust was too complicated. But really, it's it's not very complicated at all. It works the way you, you know you think a will should work. The assets in the trust, it's according to contract, goes to your beneficiaries like an insurance policy. It's your policy as long as you're alive. After you're gone, if you don't change it, it goes to designated beneficiaries. The beneficiaries on a trust agreement can sell your house or your brokerage account, stock account, whatever you have. A few days after you're gone, what a death with There's no court proceeding. There's no probate. Capital gains taxes are wiped out by death. And there's no estate death tax in New York under almost $7 million per person as of January 1st. What happens if somebody doesn't like what's in the trust and they think that, you know, hey, I should have gotten more? Well, the thing is, if you go through a will, let's say you have a will. I leave my house to my... Uh, three nephews and nieces, and I don't leave anything to my fourth nephew, we'll say. Well, in order for those children, those nephews and nieces, to sell the house, they have to go to court, and in effect, they have to serve that disinherited nephew with papers, which in effect is almost an invitation for him to get a lawyer and to contest the will. If you have a trust, you don't have to notify that nephew. You can sell that house without the nephew even knowing that you sold it. And, of course, if he's an estranged nephew who doesn't even know where you are, who you are, where you are, he's not going to get notice. And in any event, he has to pay for a lawyer to try to contest the trust, which is very hard. And, of course, this is part of a good estate plan. If you have a will and a trust, and your will and trust say pretty much the same thing, that a strange nephew has to win two cases at trial. He has to throw out the will and he has to throw out the trust. And of course, if we're in a contested matter, we're going to try to do those two signings on two different days so that objecting nephew has two trials to win, not one. And very few lawyers would ever take a case where you have to win two cases. He's not going to take it on a contingency. So, and if you really want to put the nail in the coffin, we do a third will six months, a year later. And we've kind of completely put the nail in that coffin. So, listen, 
if you're if you're facing a situation where you have a relative that you're not going to name in your will, not going to name in your plan, and you want to make it easy for the other ones, then you know we do a trust agreement and we do a will or maybe two wills to back it up. And you know there's also another tool sometimes what we call an interorum clause, which is not used maybe often enough, but that's where you say let's say. You have a $2 million estate, and let's say that nephew that you don't like too much, you leave him $100,000, and you say that if he contests the will, he gets nothing. And so in that case, there are very few people, if you, you know, here's a check on the table for $100,000 tax-free, cash it. There are very few people who would not take that check and then sign a release. Now, there might be somebody who would, you know, but at least that's, there are very few people, especially if that nephew that we're talking about this estranged nephew. In a lot of cases, that estranged nephew has a problem with drugs or alcohol or something like that, and $100,000 is a lot of money, and he'll sign, you know, a consent to that. You know, I want to bring up, if you if you have a trust, you're still the owner of the house for tax purposes, so if you have a senior citizen's or veteran's exemption, STAR program, you still keep those assets. A lot of times, especially you make the house joint with your son, which we talked about earlier, Assuming your son is not a senior citizen and he has income, you're not going to be able to get a senior citizen's exemption. You know, and a lot of people do that, and then their real estate taxes go up dramatically because, again, the son or daughter is not a senior citizen and you're not entitled to the senior citizen's exemption. And one thing um, people should look at, the veteran's exemption. Nicole, I, I would say there are an awful lot of veterans or the widow of a veteran who do not take advantage of the exemptions. I mean, what percentage would you say just on that? I would say there's at least 65% of widows of veterans that don't know that they're entitled to the exemption. And then I think a lot of veterans now more than ever are, they come in and we look at their deeds and they do have it. I don't know if it's something that's going around. The VA maybe is putting it out there or they know other guys that have it on there, but definitely the widows, about 65% of them don't know that they're entitled to the exemption. And then the other thing is, well, I don't know where the DD-214 is a lot of times. So. Yeah, well, you can get the DD-214 hopefully online and we can give you the address where you can get it. The DD-214 is like a summary of the discharge. Now, it depends when what, what years you were in the service. Sometimes... Like if uh, you were like me, you got your TD-214 on discharge from active duty, and then you got your regular discharge when your reserve time was up, let's say, three years later. Um, so it could be the discharge. A lot of the World War II veterans, the discharge and the DD-214 are printed on the same piece of paper. But the DD-14 says when you are in active duty, how long you are in active duty, whether you were overseas, whether you're in combat, that kind of thing, whether you have any combat ribbons. And one of the things that I think even a lot of veterans don't know, they did change the rules on what they would call Cold War veterans. In other words, somebody who was in active duty between 1955 and 1962, a couple of years ago, was not considered a veteran. Um, so... If they properly filled out the form for veterans exemption, let's say seven or eight years ago, and I'm not sure exactly when it changed, uh, or they put it in, they would be rejected. But the law was changed in between. So if, let's say, was somebody was in active duty 1957, 58, uh, they weren't in combat. They were at Fort Dix, New Jersey, for two years. 
did their time, they got out, no combat, they didn't serve during time of war, they weren't in Lebanon or one of the other you know, hot spots that happened during that time period, they are entitled to a veteran's exemption right now. The law was changed blanketly, which I, I think was fair, because, uh, again, let's say for the sake of argument, I was in Germany in the 1970s, I got the veteran's exemption because it was during the Vietnam War, where if somebody else was in Germany in 1957-58, they didn't get the veteran's exemption previously because it wasn't during time of war. And it's also expanded, you know, like I think practically anybody who's been in the service after World War, during World War II and after World War II is a veteran. Now, I've seen a couple of guys, you know, which astounded me. They're gone now, but you're on active duty before World War I, before Pearl Harbor, you weren't a veteran. And, of course, they never changed that because if you were, you'd have to be like 110 today if you were on active duty before 1940. But... I did know a, a couple of people who fit that characteristic. This is years ago. But, you know, like if you were 20 years old in 1940, you'd be, what, 105 or something today, 104 today. So uh, I don't think there are too many of those guys around. Plus, if they were on active duty just before Pearl Harbor, they probably were in the service for a time during World War II. So it's, it's just one of those quirks. But I would say there's still a fair amount of people that don't realize they're entitled to the veteran's exemption. And some people think, well, to, let's say the widows you're talking about, well, I bought the house after my husband died. You know, I owned a house with joint with my husband. He died. I sold the house. And I bought a new house after he died. His name was never on the deed. You're still entitled to the veteran's exemption. If you're the widow of a veteran or what they call a gold star parent, you're the mother of a, a person who died in military service, you're entitled to that exemption. So, you know, don't don't give up the benefits that, you know, you're entitled to because whatever your service member was, and I don't care if you spent two years in Fort Dix and had a good time and came on home every weekend, um, that person still gave up two years of his life or her life to service this country in the, in the Army. Something could have happened in those two years. They're entitled to the exemption. They're, you're entitled to the exemption. And unfortunately, you can't go back. You can only go forward. And the deadline to file for the veteran's exemption is March 15th of each year. Assuming it's not a weekend. But I don't think March 15th next year is on a weekend. So your deadline is March 15th. You have to get those papers in before March 15th. And the senior citizen's exemption, basically, if you're over 65 and your income is less than $60,000 a year, you're entitled to the senior citizen's exemption. And that's, again, why some people make a mistake. They put their son or daughter's name on the deed. First of all, the son or daughter's income would probably throw you over $60,000 with your Social Security check. And obviously, your son or daughter may not be 65 years of age or older. So, again, that's where the trust agreement, you put your house in a trust, you still keep those exemptions. I think some people are... You know, under the misapprehension that maybe you're the trustee for your parents, misapprehension that they own the property then. No, you don't own the property. You don't own the property if it's in a trust. It's usually the parents who own the property until they pass away, and then you're not the owner until your parents are gone. So, again, you get all the benefits of the tax purposes. I think most of you know if you sell your house out there, 
If it's your primary residence, the first 250000 of capital gain is not taxed on the sale of your residence. 250000 for husband, 250 for wife. And also, there are all sorts of benefits that you get if one of the couple dies, um, which probably would take too long for the, for the time we have today. So I, I guess we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. Nicole Donnelly. Always a pleasure. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, and I'll accompany my, one of our attorneys, Nicole Donnelly, my wife Beth, and my son Michael. Ray. Nicole, you had a question when we went off the air. I do, because sometimes we see this scenario, and it's important to note for the listeners. Mr. Connors, is it ever too late to actually do a power of attorney? Well, yeah, obviously it can be. One, if you're dead, you can't do a power of attorney. Oh, no, that's that's, that's You know, that kind of silence is... Then it's no longer... Not everybody knows that, too, so that's a a good tidbit for the listeners. And the other thing is, if you're not mentally competent... To sign a power of attorney, obviously it could be too late. What's the standard? It's hard to say. In theory, you have to have a higher mental capacity to sign a power of attorney than you do to sign a will. 
And I, as, as a practical matter, I don't think I've met that person who was competent to sign a will, who was not competent to sign a power of attorney. I think as a practical matter, I haven't met that person. But basically, you know, you have to have contractual ability. So you have to know who you're dealing with. You trust that person. You want to put, you know, faith in that person to handle your responsibilities. Um should know what your assets are. There, there's not as there's not as much case law on the competency to do a power of attorney as a will, but it's a higher degree, it's a higher standard, whatever it is. Which means that if you're thinking about doing a power of attorney, you can't wait for the last minute because you don't know when the last minute is. I mean, you can give an example of two, Nicole. Yeah, I would say so. You know, people sometimes get dementia. Um, diagnosis and their families don't want to believe it, right? So they take them to two or three doctors and then all of a sudden they let it go because it's not affecting them. And then we get a situation where the person, you know, just doesn't remember who they are, doesn't even remember who their loved ones are and can't answer the basic questions when you ask them who's taking care of you, who's supposed to pay your bills, who's supposed to do things on your behalf, and they just can't even give you an answer. They're nonverbal at that point. I would say nonverbal is a time when it's very hard yeah. to do a power I mean, of attorney. Obviously, you could have somebody who has a stroke it's nonverbal. Maybe they can communicate in other ways mm -hmm. as long as they can communicate. But that can be a problem. And, of course, one of the things, one of our enemies is a stroke because somebody could be perfectly competent today and have a stroke tonight and not be able to sign documents tomorrow afternoon. And that you see more, more than a few times. You know, like dementia... I, you know, sometimes you don't want to say it's the family's fault, but they procrastinated. They put it off. There were years and years, and people have good days and bad days. And one of those good days, maybe we could have signed a PAP attorney. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, if they're all bad days, then obviously we can't sign a PAP attorney. And the alternative at that point is to go to court and get a guardian appointed. And believe me, that gets expensive because you're paying for your own lawyer. You're probably paying for a court-appointed lawyer to represent the what they call, and I hate this term, AIP, alleged incapacitated person. I hate those initials. I hate those terms. You know, they're a person. They're not, a, you know, an alleged person. Mm -hmm. You know, they may be alleged to be incapacitated, which I guess is the thought. Um, but I think it demeans, it demeans the personalities. It takes something away from them when you use that term. But you don't want to go through guardianship. You don't want, you know, between husband and wife. It's extremely important to avoid a guardianship. Let's say a husband and wife, they own a house together. Husband has a stroke. Wife wants to move to Florida. Husband's name's on the deed. She can't sell the property without her husband's consent. If her husband's not mentally competent and we don't have a power of attorney, you have to go to court. Now, I know some people are afraid of signing a power of attorney, but one of the things we can do is we can put in the power of attorney that the power of attorney is what we call springing. It doesn't take effect till a medical doctor writes in effect a letter saying that you don't have legal capacity to manage your affairs in a competent manner. And sometimes that's hard to get a doctor to, to sign that letter because we have borderline people, but it's better than nothing. Is there ever a time when you need a guardianship even though you have a power of attorney? Sometimes you might because somebody in the family forces your hand. 
In other words, let's say you do have a power of attorney and things are going okay, and then there's a son or daughter from a prior marriage or whatever who brings everything into court and says somebody's stealing from their mother, their father, or whatever, and you lose control of the situation, and you might need to have a guardianship in that case. Um, But short of that... Usually when you have a power of attorney, you're full-on avoiding a guardianship. It's safe to say that as long as there's no problems in the family. I would say 99% of the time, if you have a power of attorney, we can avoid a guardianship. Yes, there could be a disgruntled family member who challenges the power of attorney, brings it into court, and judges sometimes. If there's a dispute between family members, they say, oh, let's appoint an independent guardian, you know to resolve everything, which again might be the best solution in some cases. But in a lot of cases that leaves you, it's almost a position where it's a lifetime sentence without parole for the person because they don't have control of their money anymore. And let's say, you know, judge appoints a guardian and, you know, the person wants to do something, he or she may not be able to do it. And you say, well, it can go to court and get the guardian removed. But it's not that easy to get a guardian removed, one and two, Remember, you don't have the money to pay a lawyer to remove the guardian. And the judge who appointed the guardian is going to be very, very prejudiced in favor of his or her prior decision to appoint a guardian and say the guardian was needed. And it's going to be almost impossible to get it back. Yeah, there are people occasionally that have strokes and they do rehab and they get better. And sometimes you can reverse the guardianship. But it's it's almost a lifetime sentence without parole. And I wouldn't want an enemy to go through that, let alone a family member that I respect. So I would, I would strongly think about making these decisions about doing a power of attorney. If you want to put certain constraints in there, you want to put two people in there, you want to say both of them have to sign, you want to say they can't use it without a, a, a medical doctor or a psychiatrist you know, statement saying you're not able to handle things in a competent manner. Okay, let's do that. But you don't want to be in a position where, God forbid, you have a stroke or another disabling illness and you have to go to court to get a guardian appointed. It's not a good position. And if you're in a hurry, it's a terrible position because a guardianship, especially if it's contested, could take six months, nine months, a year. And meanwhile, if you got a $15,000 a month nursing home bill and we've lost a year, that's $180,000 we've thrown out the window. So, uh, again... I'm not saying everybody should have a power of attorney because you give a power of attorney to the wrong person. They can wipe you out. They can steal you blind. But if you don't have a power of attorney, there's a good stance, chance circumstances are going to steal you blind. So I, if you have any relative you can trust at all, I, I would strongly think recommend thinking about doing a power of attorney. you got to ask yourself, who do I trust more? Do I trust the government, the court system, or do I trust my family? And I hope you, you trust your family, you know, more than the court system. And just speaking practically, right, even though they sign a power of attorney, it doesn't automatically go into effect. So we tell people all the time, well, if the agent doesn't sign it and you hold on to it and you keep it in a place where maybe an independent person knows, or if you tell them to come to Connors and Sullivan, we keep an original on hand, right? So that way we know what's going on with the person and we're not just releasing the power of attorney when, you know, the person's not sick or something's not going on. Yeah. And even then that could be a little bit of a hassle because sometimes, you know, like a nephew or niece asks about their uncle or aunt, 
and we're not sure whether the uncle or aunt is able to handle their own affairs, and it might look like we're giving them a little bit of a hard time because we want to verify whatever the circumstances are. In other words, is the power of attorney springing? Do we need a doctor's letter before we release that power of attorney? And that that's one of the reasons not to do a springing power of attorney um, that some people don't realize. You know, like you say, hey, that sounds pretty good. Nobody can use a power of attorney unless a medical doctor says that I'm not able to handle things. Well, there's some medical doctors don't want to get involved. There's sometimes, let's say you go to a nursing home, and I've been there. We had a lawyer once, and he didn't want his relatives to have power of attorney unless the medical doctor said that he wasn't competent. He was in a coma. And the medical doctor at the nursing home said, well, he can come out of this coma. I'm not going to write that he's incompetent. And we couldn't use that power of attorney. And months went by when we were paying fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars $16,000 a month to the nursing home. Thank God he wasn't on a respirator. We'd be paying thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a month to the nursing home. So... You know, you got to be careful what you ask for, too. And, you know, you can be ping-ponged around. Like, in other words, let's say you got a husband and wife, power of attorney, and they have a nephew, <coughs> one of their nephews as the backup, and it's springing power of attorney, and you got to get a letter from the, let's say, the uncle's lawyer or the uncle's doctor saying that the uncle's not capable of handling things. you got to get a letter from the aunt's lawyer saying, not competent of handling things, and then they want each other, and then before you know it, you can get ping-ponged to death at the hospital or nursing home, and again, before you know it, you've lost months and months and months, if you can even get a solution, because some, again, if you're, you know, family doctors usually have a habit of being cooperative, but, you know, doctors and institutions, if they don't know the family, may not be. And of course, some doctors can play it so strictly by the rules, I don't have authority to talk to you and be technically right and can't even talk to you about whether the power of attorney can be signed, even though the power of attorney says you can talk to him, but that's only if a medical doctor says you can speak to him and, you know, catch 22. And I, I know this sounds absurd, but there are nursing homes, there are doctors who will pull these arguments out of the hat. So the the question is, if you have family members you can trust, I would just do a power of attorney where basically there are no restrictions. Hopefully, you know, you can trust your family. And I know there are people that can't trust their family. I'm not saying anything blanket. You know, but you know your children. If your children are over 30 and they haven't given you a problem in the first 30 years of their life, they're not likely to start now. So... Think about it. I'm not telling anybody to do anything. What I am telling you to do is think about it. Decide whether you want the court system to decide who's in charge of your affairs or whether you want to choose the family members you want to be in charge of your affairs. And then when you think it over, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. We can schedule an appointment to talk about it. Give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We have offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. And if you go to Staten Island, it's a good chance you're going to see Nicole there. I am there very often. Unless you're on a day where Justin's there, then you'll see Justin. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. 
and a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder, is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at catholicscomehome.com. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothe them, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, there are cousins, sisters, there are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. And, you know, a week ago we were talking with Nat Segaloff and, and about his work, his book on John Milius, and we decided to bring Pat Falsey on, who, as many of you know, worked with John Milius on the film The Rough Riders. Welcome back, Pat. Well, thank you for asking me to uh, be part of this program on the, uh, the great John Milius. Okay. Now, I... You know, again, some of the people, a lot of our old times, they know who John Ford was and everything else. But not everybody knew who John Milius was. And, and of course, his career is, I guess, cut a little short by his health problems. But you you worked with him on the Rough Riders. What was it like to work with, with John Milius? It was fantastic. I tell you, the most fun I ever worked on a film was Rough Riders. And I'll tell you what John Milius did is that before we started filming... Back in uh, 1996, down in Texas, he decided to have a boot camp. And, you know, Berenger, Tom Berenger was Teddy Roosevelt, and Teddy Roosevelt, you know, with, with the whole deal, with the Rough Riders and everything. Uh, Tom Berenger, we all know, worked on and st- uh, starred in Platoon. And he went to a boot camp with Captain Dale Dye, a Marine. And so uh, John Millies decided to have a boot camp. And so he got all the actors together and a lot of the uh, people, cowboys, uh, rodeo riders, all together. And thanks to Tom Berenger, because we hit it off so well in the film Gettysburg, he asked me, Pat, if you, if you want to be in the movie Rough Riders, come to Texas. I'll take care of you. But you got to shave your beard and cut your hair really short because I don't want the AP Hill look. You don't have to look like a Rough Rider. If you want, you could have a big black mustache. And so that's what I did. And so going down there, John Millius decided with the boot camp, he did not tell 
the authorities at TNT. Ted Turner knew nothing about this. And so the day before we were having this uh, boot camp, Tom Berenger came up to me and said, now, Pat, you can't tell anybody, including John Millius, anybody that you know me. You have to be on your own. Some people are going to make it through. Some people are not. Well, okay. So we had to put all our belongings in a motel and just have basically, you know, sweatpants, uh, T-shirts, uh, sweatshirts or whatever, sneakers or whatever, and then you're on your own. So for a whole week, we were living in tents. They, we, they got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. They had us run eight, nine miles. I mean, some of these people, you know, couldn't do it. And I was one of the oldest ones and one of the smallest people. And they had all youngsters doing this. And some people were falling by the wayside. And then after the eight-mile run or whatever, they would feed us spam. That would be it. And then after that, we would do calisthenics, caterpillar push-ups, you know, all these things, uh, sit-ups, everything. And then, you know, Dale Dye is watching everybody because he had this organization called Warriors Incorporated. And he had his Marines, so to speak, keeping it on everybody. And so luckily, I made it through the boot camp. And after the whole deal was all over with, Tom Berenger came up to me. He said that, you know, everybody, including John Millius, was voted against you. I made a couple of bucks just watching you perform all this. But that was the amazing thing. Uh, we could not communicate outside. So my wife, Joan, she, she was, you know, for the whole week wondering, what happened to him? Where is he? What are you doing? Because all these other people are a lot younger. But John Millius, he really liked. Just, you know, saw me go through the whole uh, boot camp and everything. So because of him, I got to do a couple of lines in a uh, fire scene, you know, basically, you know, campfire scene. And I was right next to uh, Jeffrey Lewis during that. So that really worked out well. But I got to tell you this about John Millius. John Millius is larger than life. John Millius loves people who are larger than life. Teddy Roosevelt is his favorite president. And the Rough Riders was very dear to John Millius. Well, we were filming way back down in uh, 1996. Uh, we all had our uniforms. And then Tom Berenger and John Millius said, you know, it's Halloween is coming up. Why don't we go to the Menga Hotel? Go to the bar. That's where Teddy Roosevelt recruited many of his Rough Riders. Don't tell anybody. Let's all just show up in our uniforms. So that night on Halloween, 1996, we all show up in our uniforms. I mean, I, me, Berenger, uh, Sam Elliott, uh, Gary Busey, John Parks, we all go in there. We're, gonna, we're having a great time. And then all of a sudden, John Millius walks in. John Millius walks in with a big old cigar in his mouth, and on his arm is a Playboy bunny. It was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Everything focused around John Millius. Like I said, he loves people that are larger than life, and he is larger than life just by doing this. So what, you know, you know like, of course, one of the things that I, I just talked about a story. I had a client come in the other day who's, named his son Ethan after the John Wayne character in The Searchers. And I understand John Millius did the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. He has a son named Ethan because John loves The Searchers. He considers it one of the greatest movies, if not the greatest movie of all time. And, and he considers John Wayne's performance the best. Not only of John Wayne, 
but of anybody else who ever performed on, on, in the motion picture. He said that. And, and he loved the searches so much that he wanted to be in the searches. And if he could be anybody in the searches, he wanted to be like Chief Scar. <laughs> but that was John Williams. He, he was larger than life. I mean, he was amazing. And on the set, you saw him, and he was checking everything out, making sure you know the weapons were proper. I mean, he knows his history. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to do a, a movie that has humor in it, but, but has a lot of action. And he loves America so much, he wanted to tell everybody this was truly America's first heroes going into the uh, 20th century. And he did this with the boot camp, basically, because he didn't just want, you know, actors portraying Rough Riders. He wanted Rough Riders. So throughout the whole course of not only learning how to use all the weapons and the uniform and everything, but... They had special uh, wranglers there, even a rodeo rider there. Raleigh Wilson, who was a rodeo champion, they would would do all the different maneuvers with the horses uh, from a column of two to a column of four. And the ironic thing about it is, like, when you go through the training with the Rough Riders during the filming and everything, and yet when, as the story continues, we do get over to Cuba the horses are not there because there weren't enough uh, room on the ships going across from Florida to Cuba to carry all the horses. But a few horses were available, and uh, Teddy rose out his horse, Little Texas. But uh, the funny thing about it is if a horse has a resume, there's one particular horse that has my name on it. The horse's name is Guy. Richard Gear rode Guy in Summersby. Years later, Cooper Huckabee, who played the scout in the movie Gettysburg, rode Guy. I rode Guy in Rough Riders, and then Brian Mallon rode Guy in Gods and Generals. <laughs> so, uh, like I said, if a horse, which uh, he's probably gone to the big corral in the sky now, has a resume, uh, I'm on that, that list there with that horse guy. But they picked the horses to match the people. Or the Rough Riders. So, like I said, it was something special. We filmed in Texas, and uh, we had the boot camp down there, and it was just great being with uh, people like, you know, Tom Berenger and, and Sam Elliott. And it was almost like a reunion with the movie Gettysburg, because you had Sam Elliott there, as I said, Tom Berenger there. You, you had Buck Taylor, who was great. And uh, you had the same Wranglers who worked on Gettysburg, also worked on uh, Rough Riders. So it was something special, and just uh, to be a lot with, with all these people. Now, Sam Elliott went through the boot camp? Cowboys. Sam Elliott went through the boot camp? Oh, absolutely. What and if he didn't make it? I mean, he was... They were all there. I mean, you know, they didn't spend the whole time, but they were there observing everything. But, but Tom really, you know, spent the night there, and then Sam came towards the end. But uh, it was just something, you know, just to, to be there with all of them. Gary Busey was there also as General Joe Wheeler. And uh, Jeffrey Lewis, he always, always you know, had a joke and so forth. But uh, like I said, just, just the most fun I ever had working on a movie was Rough Riders. All right. Well, listen, you know, we got we got to appreciate John Milius for what he's done and, you know, the great films that he wrote and directed. And Absolutely. I just, I just wish he got, we got to see more of his films that he directed. Um, I know. 
I know, you're absolutely right about it. Oh, by the way, uh, as you remember, as members of the Searchers Club, as we are, we all went down to uh, San Antonio back in 19, well, 2017, and we ended up going to the Manga Bar at the Manga Hotel with Teddy Roosevelt recruiting his Rough Riders. I want you to know that while I was in there, I spoke to the bartender there, and he was the same bartender who served us back in 1996, <laughs> and he still remembers when we were all there. So they're going to talk about this for years. All right. We're there. And thanks to, uh, you know, John Millius for arranging this whole thing with us, you know, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Let's all just show up as a Rough Rider. And then we're all there in our uniforms. And then he makes a grand entrance with a big old cigar and a Playboy bunny on his arm. <laughs> well, thanks for telling us his memories. And we'll talk to you sometime soon, Pat. Okay. Thanks for everything. You take care now. And saddle up. <laughs> Hi, this is Patrick Wayne. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit. My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979, and in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatment. He inspired our family to carry on that mission and to fight what my dad called the Big C. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. If you'd like to know more about what the Wayne family is doing to fight cancer, just go to johnwayne.org. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Thanks again for Pat Fauci for that story about the Rough Riders. You know, Beth, that reminds me of a story I've, I've heard a couple of times. One of your favorite stories. Yeah, well, <laughs> I remember once Jim Backus was on The Tonight Show, and Johnny Carson said, what was the funniest man you ever worked with? And he said, Victor Mature. <laughs> of course, everybody said, Victor Mature? And he said, yes, he had a great sense of humor. And they were on a movie, Androcles and the Lion, where they were both playing Roman soldiers. And so after they finished wrapping up for the set, Victor Mature said, let's go over, stop off in a bar and have a drink, have a beer. And, of course, they both in their full Roman uniform regalia. <laughs> so they go into the bar, and, of course, the bar owner just dead silent. Victor Mature looks at him and says, what's the matter? Don't you serve members of the armed forces? <laughs> 
And then I didn't realize, but we saw it in a biography or something, Victor Mature, that he and, and Jim Backus knew each other way back when from Kentucky. So it's just an interesting story. And sometimes the people you think have a sense of humor, <laughs> you know, you don't know. And for someone who had a, a good sense of humor like that, they're smart. Yeah. So my problem is, you know, he just never looked that smart. You know, so he's hiding it. <laughs> well, any event, thank you for listening to the show. We'll see you next week at the same, you know, time and places. Uh, again, if you want to schedule an appointment with Connors and Sullivan, please do so at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. And if you'd like to schedule an appointment, please schedule an appointment. We have offices in Staten Island, Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. Don't be afraid to call if you want to call. You know, if you want to talk about history, maybe call Schedule Talk About History. Of course, my staff's not going to like it, but <laughs> I'll enjoy it. So give us a call anytime. And come see the soldiers in Brooklyn. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.